Amen. So thank you, Tony. I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do that now. My name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer City, and uh, it's my joy to be with you this morning. We are in a series where we're going to go through the book of, or through the letter of Ephesians written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. We're just going to go bit by bit as we go through it. Uh, we began last week, so we are still in chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 7 this morning. Actually, we're going to go back and read verse 3 and then read verses 7 through 12. And so it's printed for you in your worship folder. If you want to pull your Bible out, that would be good too. In fact, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it because I want to show you something from this whole section there that I can't replicate in just the, the what's printed. But nevertheless, it's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, we welcome you. It'll be on your screen as well as we read together beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Would you say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. That's true. Let me ask a question to get us thinking this morning. What, what is your net worth? What is your net worth? But more importantly... What are the categories that you use to calculate your net worth? Is it purely your financial assets? Because the text here says that there are riches that have nothing to do with material things. There are spiritual blessings in heavenly places that are the source of true wealth. So in Luke chapter 12, which we read not long ago in our community Bible reading, Jesus warned of spending your life building an investment portfolio and at the same time not being rich toward God. So what is your net worth and what categories do you use to calculate it as you think about your life and yourself? This letter from Paul to the Ephesians is about how to be spiritually rich, which is the true riches, because material things do not last. They rust, they spoil, they fade over time. They can be taken away from you, but the riches that Paul talks about In this letter, they last forever. They can't be taken away from you. They never wear out. He calls it, verse 7, you will see there, the riches of God's grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, it's the riches of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 16, it's the riches of his glory. This word, riches, comes up over and over and over again in this letter, which is why the subtitle of this series on Ephesians we've called Riches of Grace. There is a depth to God. There are riches in him. There's beauty and glory that have no bottom. And knowing him brings that beauty and glory into your life and creates a spiritual, emotional, relational wealth to you that is better than any bank account statement. It can give you joy and peace and hope and cause you to live with a sense of purpose that you cannot get from material things. That is what Paul wants us to see. God himself is a treasure. And to know him personally, to live as his beloved, verse 6, that's the real riches. Without that, without that, no amount of money in the bank 
will ever make you feel safe. No vacation, no matter how exotic, will make you come alive. But conversely, if you know that you are the beloved, then nothing else matters. Dane Ortland put it this way. He said, if you know you're the beloved, you are eternally invincibilized. Now, this is cheesy, so forgive me. But I was thinking, you know, in the comic books or in the movies, it's always some kind of radiation or alien substance that alters the genetic code that turns a normal person into a superhero. And that's somewhat what Paul is saying here, that there are the riches of God. And if your life gets radiated by the beauty and the glory of God, it can give you spiritual superpowers. Moses. If you remember, Moses saw the glory of God and his face began to glow. He became the human torch, literally. That's a character from the Fab or the Fantastic Four, right? He began to glow. And in the same way, if you could see the glory of God, if it could become real to your soul, you would be eternally invincibilized. Faster than a speeding bullet. Right. We won't go, we won't go that far. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, He who has God. And everything. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Because he is the true treasure. So here's what I want to try to do. I just want to walk through this text and try to show you, as Paul's trying to show us, I think. I want to convince you of the spiritual riches that can be yours if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you are rich. That you are spiritually rich. And you should live from that place of, of, of having and then passing along those riches to others. But you have to understand a couple of things. You have to know, first, that you're rich because all that Jesus is and all that he has is yours. Secondly, you got to know that you're rich because of the nature of the work that Jesus has accomplished and is accomplishing for you. And thirdly, you got to know that you're rich because you see that all throughout the span of your life and all throughout the span of human history, past, present, and future, all of it, all of it is called here by Paul the riches of his grace. And so let's walk through the text together. Can we do that? Beginning first by saying that you are rich if your faith is in Jesus. You are rich because all that Jesus is and all that he has is yours. So go to verse 7 and notice how it begins. It says, in him we have redemption. And one of the things that stands out as you read this this uh, long, run-on, terribly crafted, horribly wrong grammatically sentence that Paul is rambling through here, beginning in verse 3 all the way to verse 14. As you read it, one thing that stands out is the number of times that Paul says something like, in Christ, through Christ Jesus, in him. So let's just, if you have a Bible and you can follow along, maybe underline or highlight every time. If not, once we get to these verses, you can do it there. But verse Three, he has blessed us in Christ. Verse four, he has chosen us in him. Verse five, he's predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse six, he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse seven, in him. We have redemption through his blood. So it's twice there in verse seven. Verse nine, his eternal purpose is set forth in Christ. Verse 10, he's uniting all things in him. Do you see? Verse 11, in him we have an inheritance. Verse 12, we hope in Christ alone. Verse 13, in him we are sealed with the Spirit. It's as if Paul is stuttering. Twelve times in 11 verses. It must be important. And the language there is the language of union with Christ, which means when you believe 
If you put your faith in Jesus, when you believe, you are united to Jesus so that all that he is and all that he has becomes yours. What goes for him goes for you. And so think about Jesus' credentials. Think about his resume. Think about the resources at his disposal. All of that is yours. And at the same time, if you're in Christ, all of the burden falls upon Jesus. All of the obligation, all of the have to gets put on his shoulders. And all of his strength, all of his success, all that he is and all that he has is given to you. Last week, Jonathan greeted us at the very beginning of the service uh, so brilliantly. He just said, he said, you know, you might be tired because you're coming out of the week where everything depends upon you. And he had me because that's exactly what I was feeling. I was feeling the way of that. And he said, but the good news is we come to church, we listen to the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that all that God is doing to save us, none of it depends upon you. Salvation doesn't depend upon you. And I know that. I know that, but I needed him to remind me of it. And as soon as he said it, it was like I just relaxed into it. And I hope that same thing can happen to us today. You are not blessed, we're told here, as a reward for what you've accomplished. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You're not righteous because you attain a high moral standard. You're righteous only because of the record of Jesus' obedience. You're not loved by God and adopted because he saw potential in you and wanted to be a part of bringing that out. You are the beloved because you're in the beloved. And Jesus is the beloved. But you get the same status with the Father when you believe, which is when you stop relying upon yourself, which is the definition of sin and unbelief, and you trust him instead. See, Christianity doesn't divide the world up into good people and bad people. And the good people, they get the good stuff and they go to heaven when they die. And the bad people, they get the bad stuff and ultimately they go to hell when they die. The division in Christianity is not between the good and the bad. The division in Christianity is between those who are in Christ, good and bad, and those who are not. Christianity is Christ. Let me say it again. Christianity is Christ. We cannot save ourselves. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's been very impactful, he shaped me greatly, he would often ask, and I said this often, but I think it bears repeating, he would ask, do you think you're a Christian? He would ask somebody that, and the reply he would often get was, well, I'm trying to be, and if you, Lloyd-Jones was kind of a grumpy old man, and, uh, and he was pretty straightforward, and he was a straight shooter. So someone would, you know, do you think you're a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be. And he would look at the person, and he would say, then you don't know the first thing about Christianity at all. He said, that's a person who doesn't understand Christianity at all, because if you still think in terms of your effort or your record or your merit, if you're still trying to be a Christian, you're on the wrong road. You're moving further and further away from Christianity, not toward it. Because Jesus did not come to tell us what we must do in order to be saved. He came to save us by doing it all for us, obeying for us, living for us, dying for us, being raised for us, seated in the heavenly places so that we might be seated there with him. You know, imagine you are crazy enough to want to go to Beijing for the Winter Olympics that start uh, this week. So you go to the airport, and the plane is going to Beijing. But what kind of relationship do you need to have with the plane to get there? I mean, it would not be enough to be under the plane. 
That would be terrible, actually, wouldn't it? To, be, to submit yourself to the plane's authority, that wouldn't necessarily get you there. It would not help to just be inspired by the plane, to watch it take off and say, oh, one day I hope to do that too. You know, it, it wouldn't even do to just follow the plane, right? You, try, you say, oh, the plane is going to Beijing, and you take note of the direction that it, that it takes off in, and you start walking in the same direction, hoping that you ultimately get to the place where the plane is going. No, to get to Beijing, what do you need? You need to be in the plane. Because if you're in the plane, then what happens to the plane will also happen to you. If the plane gets to Beijing, then you get to Beijing because you were in the plane. To be in Christ means that whatever is true for him is true for you. He died, and so you've died. He was raised, and so you were raised. You've been raised too. He is right now seated in heavenly places. In chapter 2, Paul will say, because he is seated in heavenly places and you're in him, guess what? You're already seated in heavenly places too with him. All that he is and all that he has is now yours. His status with the Father becomes yours. And the peace and the joy and the blessedness that come with, with it, all of his power and wisdom and love, they are at your disposal. Everything he owns, you own. All of his authority is now yours. Jesus said, you can speak to a mountain and say, move, and it will move. You don't believe that. Y'all don't believe that, right? I don't believe that. But it's what Jesus said. His spirit now comes and lives inside of you. And even as his inheritance, the eternal reward that his obedience has earned, that becomes yours too. And none of it depends upon you, which is really great news, isn't it? Because it means it can't be taken away from you. And that's true riches. Secondly, you're rich, not just because all that Jesus is and all that he has and all that he's done is yours. You're rich because of the nature of the work that Jesus has accomplished and is accomplishing in you and through you. So let's read it again, beginning in verse 7. It says, In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, so much is compacted into these verses, so let's focus on a few things, beginning in verse 7 with the word that just immediately grabs us, this word redemption. And the word redemption there refers to paying the price to buy something back, to buy someone out of slavery and to set them free, which of course means that you and I, in our natural state, we are in bondage to sin and, and Satan. And the only way for God to rescue us was to pay the ransom price. That our sin, our rebellion against God, and the record that comes from that rebellion, our sin was so great, our salvation so expensive, that the only way that we could be saved was to be bought with the precious blood of the Son of God. The penalty for sin was death. The redemption price was blood. And in the Old Testament, it was the blood of the sacrifice instead of the person. But in the gospel, is the blood of Jesus Christ, his death in our place. God has rescued us at, personal, at great personal cost. That's what this word means. And so listen to Paul. From his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, 
so that through his poverty you might become rich. The heart of the gospel is just this. Listen, you were poor and Jesus was rich and he spent all of his riches and became poor himself to make you rich because he loved you. And having you was better than losing all the rest. So Proverbs, one of my favorite Proverbs is better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fatted calf with hatred. That's in the Bible. (laughs) I don't like vegetables very much. I'd much prefer a good steak, but it says better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fatted calf with hatred. Love is the true riches. Amen? But to be loved by God is the best thing of all. And that redemption, that word redemption means it's exactly the case. The verses say that there are a couple of things that expands beyond the word redemption and says there are a couple of things that flow from the idea of redemption. And the first is there again in verse 7, simply that we are redeemed. Let's just read it. In him we have redemption through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Again, we've all sinned against God and sin creates a debt that has to be paid. And justice is when the person who is responsible for the debt is forced to pay themselves. But God, we're told here, did not demand that we pay. He paid the debt down himself in Jesus' death upon the cross. He did not demand our death. Jesus died for us. And his blood has satisfied God's justice so that now the prophet Micah put it this way. He said, God has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Not some of them. All of them. And so if you believe that Jesus died for you, if you believe he died in your place, God remembers your sins no more. And the riches of being forgiven like that are really hard to even explain. If God doesn't remember your sins, then you shouldn't remember them either. You can stare down the very worst parts of yourself and not be defeated by whatever it is you see. You can be hopeful Despite yourself, knowing that the love of God includes even the bad stuff, it's making up for the bad stuff. I mean, so many people I talk to are are tensed up. And as you start to dig in there with them, what you realize is is they're, they're, they're just going through life so tensed up because they're just waiting for their sins to catch up to them. But if you believe, your sins will never catch up with you because they're gone. They're a shipwreck rusting away at the bottom of the sea. That's great news. But there's a second thing. Not only that flows out of redemption, not only the forgiveness of our sins, but you have to skip all the way down to verse 10, and it says that flowing out of what God has done to redeem us in Jesus is also this. He says, he has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And the language here is so interesting. The word translated plan refers to a dwelling, to a house. So there's something that God is building. There's a construction project that God is managing. The the language fullness of time refers to the point in human history when all that God had been preparing from eternity began to actually take concrete shape in the world. Now, it's a poor analogy, but that, that fullness of time language, imagine a glass of water. And from the moment the man and the woman sinned in the garden, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of our story, God began to pour water in the glass. He made the promise in the moment there in the garden to them about the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He poured water into the glass. Then with Abraham, 
And all that he said about Abraham and blessing Abraham to make him a blessing, he poured water, more water into the glass. And then Moses, and bringing the people out of, the, out of Exodus in Egypt and establishing the law and taking Israel into the promised land, more water in the glass. And then the giving of the law and the kings, who were largely a disappointment, but the prophecies of the future king and his kingdom who would come, water filling up the glass until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, the glass was full. And then in his coming, the water began to overflow. And that's what we see here, that there was a plan. But in the fullness of time, that plan began to take concrete shape in the world. It began to overflow. All of God's preparation began, it reached the brim and it began to spill out over the top. In other words, there's a certain trajectory that your life is on, no matter what the particulars are at the moment. So don't be over particular. Don't get caught up in the moment. There's a long play that God has, that God began in eternity past, that went into full effect in Jesus, and that he is still patiently working out even up to today. And it is nothing less than the healing of the whole world. Verse 10, God is uniting all things. You see that? It's the word for head, but in verb form. And it means that all things are being put together into something true and beautiful and good in the end. That the cosmos is not cluttered, that there's coherence, that life is not random, it's just one thing after another. It's a story that will make sense once it's been told. And nothing reported in the news today or tomorrow or the day after makes the slightest difference in the totality of what God has purposed to do. And we can take heart in that. And knowing it can make you truly, truly rich, which brings us to the last thing we want to say. Because believing what I just said, believing that means that all of life, past, present, and future. It means that you begin to see it for what it really is. What Paul refers to here, and this is really the crux of the whole section of the text here, verse 7, the riches of his grace. Do you see that? Not just grace, he says, riches of grace that are lavished on us, verse 8. So one of Paul's favorite words there is that word lavished. You could say he uses it lavishly throughout his letters. It means that God goes way beyond the bare minimum. Life with God is like going out to dinner with, you have that person in your life who just orders too much food. They get five appetizers and more wine than you can drink. I mean, that's the person you want to go to dinner with, right? Especially if they're paying. And that's what God's like. He loves to lavish. He goes way beyond the bare minimum. I got stuck on this line from Eugene Peterson this week in preparing. He said, in matters of grace, hyperboles are understatements. But looking back on the past, further back than we are able to look without help, Paul reiterates that everything comes from God's purpose and plan. You see that in verses 9 and 10, which means that everything comes with intent, that there are no accidents, that all the details and the big things too and the good stuff and the hard stuff and the highs and the lows, that all of it has been arranged by the love of God. If I could bring up that word predestination again, you find it in verse 11 there, you'll notice the word destination, the Greek word is horizo, from which we get our word horizon. And so what we learn from that word is at the beginning, before anything actually happened, at the beginning, God already had the end picked out. I have a friend 
who, when he gets stressed out, jumps in the car and just starts driving. I mean, he has no idea where he's going. He doesn't tell his wife. He, you know, he just stops when he wants to. He makes it up as he goes. Can I tell you that is absolutely terrifying to me? If, I mean, if I ever did that, Jonathan, come get me, send somebody after me, I have lost my mind. Because that is just, that's, I, I've never done that. I probably never will. Uh, but I, I'm sure glad that that is not God's way. Human history is not divine improv. From the beginning, he had the end picked out. Which means, from the beginning, there's been riches of grace. But look around the present. It means if you look around at today, at this day that the Lord has made, that nothing is outside of God's purpose and plan, that today is full of riches of grace too, being lavished on us, verse 9, in all wisdom and insight. And those two words are really, really important. Wisdom means that whatever God does with today is best. Whatever God does with today is best. Insight means that whatever God does with today is brilliant. It's genius. There's no better possible thing that could happen. And believing that, what we're told here is it can unlock the mystery. Do you see that in the next verse? It says, all, it says knowing that God is working in all wisdom and insights makes known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, it makes life far less scary. You can settle in. You can relax. You can trust that whatever's happening comes from God's good hand. And you just you settle in. You take a breath. You, 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 know, you, you calm yourself, not because you finally understand it all, but because you finally realize you don't have to understand it all. It's enough to know who God is, that he is sovereign and loving and always does what's best and always in the best way possible. You see? Riches of grace. But then, that's not all. Then you look ahead to the future, and there are riches of grace there too because the best is yet to come. It says, verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. In other words, there's a treasure waiting for you in heaven. And Paul talks about this a great deal in his letters, so it must be important if you have an inheritance waiting for you, you know, it puts you at ease. It takes the pressure off. You live differently. You act like you're rich even before the money is actually yours because you know it'll be there. It's being held safe. It's being kept for the time when you need it. But the Bible says that we have a spiritual inheritance that makes any earthly inheritance look paltry in comparison. And it's absolutely secure. It will never run out. It will never fade. It will be just as bright and beautiful after a billion years as it is on day one. We tire of earthly treasures over time. But this inheritance will only increase our joy forever and ever and ever. And here's the thing about an inheritance. With an inheritance, it's yours, but only because of another's hard work and effort. Someone else did all the work. They earned the money and put it in the bank and stowed it away and left it there for you to be able to enjoy, though you did nothing to earn it. You just received it. It's riches of grace. So here's the thing. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we're so glad you're here. And we want to help you as best we can. But here's my encouragement to you this morning. I dare you to find a better deal than this. I mean, this is the offer of real riches. A relationship with your creator and meaning and purpose in life and the right perspective to not just rush through life full of anxiety and, and at the end, eternal riches that only get better and better and better for millions and millions and millions of years. If you are a Christian, 
Let me ask you this. Do you see how rich you already are? Do you see the riches that are yours? And it's all from grace. From beginning to end, it's the riches of grace. And so to close, let me just do this. Let's come back to that phrase that I mentioned in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus warned about having earthly riches and putting away money in barns and not at the same time being rich towards God. Rich towards God. What does that mean? Well, if Jesus gave away all of his riches and became poor to make you rich, well, what do you do with those riches of grace? The text in Luke 12 answers the question, but this is not a sermon on Luke 12, but it's still helpful to us, I think. It says that the spiritually rich person is, first off, able to shed the typical anxiety about life that so many people live with, which allows them to seek God's kingdom first above all things and not spend all their time and energy and effort and emotion worrying about the kids and job reviews and the retirement account balance and all of these things because they know they are already rich. They don't store up treasures on earth. Instead, they live radically generous lives, selling their possessions even and giving to the poor. Again, all of that is right there in Luke chapter 12. It says that their life is not full of toil, that they're actually able to enjoy the good things that God gives for God's sake because they have this pervasive sense of being careless in his care. That's true riches. I really thought that would, that, right? Are you, are you with me? Like that, don't, like yes. Because I know, I, I know so many people in this room who have everything that the world could possibly give them and they're still full of anxiety and despair and fear and worry. But that's true riches. To be able to be careless in his care. To be able to enjoy whatever you have, even if it's a little and not a lot. To be light and not heavy and anxious and to be radically and generous, passing on riches of grace given to you to others. And that's Ephesians 2, chapters 1 through 3 of this letter are about how God is making you rich. Then chapter 4 through 6 are about what you do with those riches. You invest in others. You use your gifts to bless and to build up other people. You pass on the grace that you've been shown to others. You bring the emotional wealth the gospel gives you into relationships, into marriage and parenting and friendship and work to transform others by your love and care. You take your riches and you invest them in the world to make the world rich, spiritually rich. You know, it's always strange to me to see wealthy people who live like they're not wealthy. It's a sad part of wealth. But it happens spiritually too. In Jesus, there are riches of grace. God's love and grace are a never-ending sea. You launch out into into it and you head towards the horizon to only get to the horizon you've seen to realize there's another horizon beyond and then another and then another and there's no end which is why john wesley when he wrote about god's love in that famous hymn he said amazing love because there's no other kind there's no other kind of love like i mean right there, this love you can't describe it by any other by any other kind other than to say that it's amazing there is no other kind of grace besides amazing grace right and so wesley said just straining toward finding the um, the language to express how he felt he said amazing love how can it be that thou my god should die for me here's what he said it goes on in that hymn to say the mystery of all 
the immortal dies, who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. But then he says, tis mercy all. And that's the way I hope you can see life, that you can look at life no matter what's going on, no matter what you're feeling or facing today, no matter what you're headed in tomorrow, into tomorrow, no matter what you look back on and are grieving from you know, either the recent or even the distant path to say, tis mercy all. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. That is the cry of faith. And so pray with me, would you? Father, that is true. There are a wealth of riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And yet we must confess to you that too often we live as paupers, not befitting the grace that we have been shown. We live with a scarcity mentality as if there is some end, some end to the good that you would do to us that we must hoard it for ourselves, some end to the grace that you would show to others so that we live in unforgiveness that we ourselves have been forgiven greatly. We live as if grace is a trickle and we're dying of thirst and we can't, we can't dare to give someone else a chance to drink instead of seeing that it is a, a never-ending vast ocean we need not ever fear that we would come to the end of the riches that you would show to us. So forgive us and help us. Help us now to believe more deeply than we did when we came in here this morning. Help us now to turn our gaze away from ourselves because that's really our problem is we're just so focused on ourselves that we just, we remain tired and fearful and full of anxiety. But if we would just take our eyes off ourselves for a minute and lift them up to you and celebrate that everything we have is because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for us. And to sing as we will in just a minute, not I, but Christ. Then the joy would come. Then the peace would come. Then, then the sense of the riches that are truly ours would come. And so help us now as we sing to do just that as a response. Make this a song of faith and repentance for us this morning and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Make us aware of the true riches that are ours and then that we would go to share and be generous to everyone we meet because you're worthy of that. And so we pray it in your name. Amen. You know, I love the line at the beginning of that song where it says that because God has given Jesus, it just says, what more, what more does heaven have to give? <laughs> and if he gave, here's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, if he freely gave him up for us all, will he not also with him give us all things that we need? And the answer is yes. And that's the confidence that you can go with. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then by that faith you've been united to him. You are the beloved of God because you are in the beloved, which means that you can go with every assurance that God will give you all that you need. He will make you rich so that you can share those riches with others. That's what this benediction means. So receive this benediction and then go uh, and live a life to the praise of his glorious grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Stay warm.